0: Welcome. It's great to have you all here. It's a beautiful day here. Have you ever wondered what protons and social emotional learning instructors have in common? (laughs) They both know how to stay positive. Okay. Well, it's time to turn it over to somebody who always has a charge. It's Dr. John with the technology spotlight. If you were here last week, you know why I'm gonna start by showing my cool video. Yeah, it didn't play last week, so Uh, here we go. If you look at this, these are servers in a Microsoft data center. And if you look carefully, you can see there's boiling liquid down there inside touching the servers. Why in the world would Microsoft put boiling liquid on their servers? That's the tech of the week. But before we talk about it, I want to step back and look at data centers um, normally, what they normally look like. And this is a pretty normal-looking data center. Remember, data centers are what make the internet work. They're the servers that your computer talks to over the internet to get information or to play videos. And so they have racks and racks of these servers, and one of the big challenges in a data center like that is managing heat because the servers have CPUs and drives and everything that make heat, and you have to move that heat away in order to keep the server cool enough so it will operate well. And so in a big data center like that, they use air, and usually when you go in a data center, you hear the fans going, and they're blowing a whole bunch of air around, and often they have aisles, and they're every other aisle is a hot aisle and then a cool aisle. Because you want to have your cold air coming in and then blow it through the servers and then have the hot air taken away to go get cooled again, right? And so it's a really big challenge. It takes quite a bit of power just to keep the data center cool enough. Well, that's air cooling. How do we stay cool? Have you ever noticed when you go outside on a hot day, You don't have a fan going, I guess the dogs do, right? You know, (laughs) right? (laughs) Turns out that dogs cannot sweat, except for on the very bottom of their pads. And so they have to breathe really fast. They're using that air cooling. We are very lucky because we have sweat. When we get really hot, our body puts out moisture on our skin, and that moisture evaporates. And that process of going from a liquid to a gas absorbs a whole bunch of heat and carries it away from our skin, cooling us down. And that's why you sweat when you get really hot. Well, if it's more efficient for us, why wouldn't it be more efficient for the servers? That's what they were thinking when they put in that boiling liquid. But there's a big problem. If you put water on the servers, it's going to ruin them. Maybe it'll short them out or maybe it'll... Uh, cause rust or all kinds of different kinds of problems like that. So they used a very special chemical, not water, but a special chemical liquid that boils at 122 degrees Fahrenheit, which is way cooler than water. In fact, water is usually about 212 degrees Fahrenheit, and I say usually because if you climb up to the top of a really tall mountain and boil water, it doesn't have to get as hot because there's less pressure. Uh, But anyway, they use this special chemical, and they put it in on the servers, and as the servers heat up and they start working, that liquid is right up against where the hot part of the computer is. And it turns into a gas and bubbles off. And if you take a look at this, this is showing that uh, data center. It's kind of like a big chest freezer. And they have these servers that they're sticking down into the liquid, and the liquid bubbles off, and goes up into that condenser. I don't know if you can see it on the top of the door there, the lid, and that uh, will cool down the gas that boiled off until it turns back into a liquid and then it'll rain back down on the servers. Now there are a couple really neat things about this idea. One of the big ones is you don't have to be circulating air. You don't have to use energy to push the air around to try to move the heat off of the servers and that can make a, a really big difference on how much energy your data center uses. But also, uh, you can cool exactly where you need to. So you can keep the temperature on the computer much closer to the same over the operating uh, cycle of the server. You know, certain times of the day, the servers aren't doing very much. And then maybe in the afternoon or something when everybody's trying to get online at once, the servers have to do a lot. And that's when they get really hot. And these big temperature swings are actually one of the things that's hard on electronics, make them wear out. The other things that are hard are things like oxygen and moisture. The things that we need, it's not the computers that need them, those are the things that actually are hard on the computers. Oxygen can cause oxidation, which can make connections inside of the servers uh, not work as well. So uh, it's a really interesting approach to put them in this liquid. It means that you can pack more servers in a tighter space because you can cool them more efficiently. It also means it might be possible to do what they call overclock the CPUs. That's where they run the computer faster inside of the server than you normally would be able to because they can cool it so efficiently, so well. So there's some interesting potential there. They think that they can reduce the power usage by up to 15%. Just by using this liquid instead of the air cooling right instead of the <laughs> puppy <laughs> uh, cooling so that that 's pretty interesting. Uh, I have to show you one other little experiment that Microsoft did. They have been experimenting with data centers where they put the whole data center inside of a can and then drop it down into the ocean and like well, that seems not very useful, you know down there, but if you think about it, you just need a cable to connect it to the internet right uh-huh. and uh, There are a few interesting things with this idea. You get a really constant temperature in the ocean down there. They did this off the coast of Scotland, this experiment. And also, you can remove the oxygen and the moisture again inside of that can and keep a really steady environment for those computers. In their experiment doing this, they proved that it is possible to make it work. They also proved that they have a lower fail rate. They did this for two years, and after two years, one-eighth the number of failures is what they saw in their little can than what they saw with the exact same kind of hardware on land, where people were walking past and the humidity and the temperature was going up and down, things like that. So uh, it's kind of an interesting idea. The idea is if something fails, you just keep using the other stuff on it. As long as you have a lower total fail rate, then it's actually a, a huge benefit. So there are some interesting possibilities here when we realize that what we need, you know, to breathe and feel comfortable is not what the computers need. (laughs) It's kind of different, isn't it? And uh, so that's how Microsoft is using boiling hot liquid to cool their servers. Pretty cool. That's all the tech we have the time for. Now it's time for breakthrough moments in science with Tobias.
1: Well, good evening. I I have to say good evening cuz as you can see I'm dressed pretty sharp tonight. Uh, you're probably like, "Man, what is going on?" Or, "Man, what's going on?" <laughs> well, tonight we're talking about a very special airplane a jet, the 747, and I was like, man, this is the first time a breakthrough aligned with the TIE that I have, okay? (laughs) So, so these are my notes, okay? Because it's got the 747 on it. Well, the 747 is just another jet, right? Well, it kind of looks that way if you just see one way, way up in the sky, maybe. But when you see one up close, or you see it by another jet, you start to realize how big of a deal it is because it is really big. And one of the big challenges of creating this jet was because of how ginormous it was. Now, if you're going to do any big breakthrough in science, you've got to just be ready to take on big projects. It's not like you can just go to the store and say, hey, I'd like a great science breakthrough to go. Okay? It's like Ikea. If you've ever been to the Ikea furniture store, it's an amazing place. You go, there's like cool beds, cool chairs, cool d- – hey, can I get this desk? And they're like, yeah, but that's the show one. Here you go. Oh, this is in a box. Yeah, it's all there. Okay, you gotta go put it together. All right. If if IKEA sold sweaters, it'd probably be like, here's a ball of yarn. <laughs> okay? You gotta do some work. Okay? Well, that's that's how it is with science breakthroughs. You you have to be ready to do stuff. So this story starts in the 1960s in Alaska at a fishing place on a river where two gentlemen were fishing. One of them was the owner of Boeing, and one of them was the owner of Pan American Airlines. So Boeing was, of course, this huge company that built a lot of airline jets. And then this airline company that had a business of flying people using those jets. And the Pan American CEO said, I have an idea for a superjet. A jet that's more than twice as big as any other airliner that exists right now. And the reason he really wanted this was airline travel was getting really popular at the time. And there were so many people wanting to fly, and so they had a lot of jets flying people holding like around 150 passengers. And he wanted a jet that could hold 400 people because then you'd have less flights, It'd save on fuel, and you'd be able to get more people there, and it would just be really good. So uh, less than a year later, he signed a contract, and it's the biggest contract ever for an airline um, business of – 25 of these new jets, and they called them the 747, Boeing 747. But there were no Boeing 747s. In fact, they didn't even know how to build it, but they said, we will have it to you in 28 months. And so they started. And the gentleman that was put in charge of this was Joe Sutter, and he was tasked with coming up and with this plan and heading up this project, this mammoth project, to get it done. Now, the first plan that they had was, okay, we'll, we'll take the fuselage... Of, the, of a normal jet, like a 707. Now the fuselage, remember, is the, the middle part, the body, where the passengers are. We'll take two of those and put them on top. It'll be a double-decker jet. Okay, kind of like this. And um, that looks like a snake that just ate a, another snake and <laughs> he needs to wait for a year or two. Um, that was the original idea, and Jake, Joe Sutter did not like the idea. From a, there were a lot of issues with it. And he thought it looked pretty bad, um, so he came up with a different idea. And his was instead of stacking the two levels, what if we put them side by side? So it'll be a huge fuselage. And it took convincing, but they were able to convince um, all of the executives that this was the way to go. So they started designing this jet with ten seats across from side to side and two aisles. So that's bigger than anyone had ever seen before by a lot. Now. As they started to design this and come up with the, the creation of it, he got thrown another curveball. Joe Sutter did. And that was one of the things we need is an option for cargo. Okay, so we've got people with seats, but then what about when we need to just have a jet for our cargo? And we want a huge door, for that, for the cargo version. A lot of the planes back then had a door in the back that went down and they would load things in. Well they wanted a door that was as big as the fuselage so if it would fit in the fuselage it would fit through the door. So the the plan was what if we took the whole front of the, of the jet and broke it off from the rest of it and it literally went open like that and so you had the fuselage just right there open. Well that, they liked that idea except one problem the cockpit is right there on the end. And so the cockpit would go up, like, look at the stars. Um, (laughs) You couldn't be in the cockpit whenever they were loading, and you wouldn't be able to leave or get in the cockpit until it came back down. So Sutter's idea was, well, let's take the cockpit and move it back and up. We'll make this bulge on the top of the jet, and that's where the cockpit will be. So here's a picture of a 747 open, and you can see the cockpit is just back far enough, and it's up so that it can be clear of that opening nose. And that is the famous bulge of 740. That is a unique thing to 747s, where they put a bulge on the top for the cockpit. Notice it doesn't go all the way back, though. Like that other interesting looking jet, they, with their calculations, discovered that as long as the bulge ended before the engines, then it wouldn't really make a difference on efficiency. And um, originally, Sutter was going to put the AC, air conditioning units, in the rest of the bulge. And then the Pan-American owner said, wait, that could be first class. So they made it a stairway to these fancy chairs up in the top level. Anyway, that's another story. But as they started working on this more, they realized, wait a minute. We have another problem. This plane is going to be so big, we can't use runways in the airports. We need a longer runway to take off. We need a longer runway to land. And so that became an issue. Well, should we just tell all the airports you need to pave new runways Um, Some of them didn't even have room to make them longer. Well, they took this on, and they looked at the flaps on the back of the wings of the plane. And this that you can use to tip them down and lift, help lift the plane as it's taking off, and also to slow down as it's coming in for landing. Well, they added a three-point flap. Here's a picture of one, and it's three flaps on the back of the wing. And it increased the lift abilities by 90% for when they were taking off. And this allowed them to be able to use this jet right on the existing runways, at least a lot of them that were there. So they start building this thing, it's huge. And they realized, wait a minute, another problem. It's too big for our factory. Oh, my goodness. So we need a bigger building. And so they started building a bigger building, and it is the biggest building per the space inside of it in the world. To put it in perspective, and it's tricky to think about how big this is, You could put all of Disneyland inside the building and all the parking for Disneyland inside the building. It's 11 stories tall, even though it's mostly all open. And then it's just huge. Here's a a picture of one spot in it. And workers that work in there who've worked there for 25 years say they still get lost sometimes. So um, it's a little bigger than Ikea. But (laughs) if you think about how big the planes are that they had to build, it was pretty amazing. Well, the day came for the public... Release where they were going to show it to everyone, and it was this was a deadline. Okay, they weren't going to fly, but they were going to show it. And literally, there was wet paint on this jet when they rolled it out to show everybody, and it was a huge excitement. And they it was, it was very well received. But there was a secret, and that was the engines were fake. They weren't real engines because nobody had engines at the time that were powerful enough to lift this airplane. So yay, no takeoff, but yay. Okay. <laughs> So they went back, and we've got to get these engines done. And they had hired a company that said, we will build the engines. And so they were working on them, and they started to get something put together, and they had a really incredible change that made it able to be powerful enough. And that was they had the jet engine. We're not going to get too into that tonight, but the jet engine takes, air pressurizes it, mixes it with fuel, combusts it, so there's like this explosion that shoots out the back. Well, around that... They had a hollow area, still inside the enclosure, but a hollow area that air could just go through. But the fan was big enough to cover all of it, and it turned out that having that area around that the air could go into, increased the power by 70%, which was pretty amazing, and that allowed them to get, the 747 has about 40,000 pounds of push that it pushes in, and so they got the engine, and they started to do tests, and unfortunately, They started to have an issue where they'd start revving it up, and an engine would pop. There'd be a terrible sound, and then it'd light on fire. Or you'd see a flame, and then it'd die. And they literally, here's a picture of um, where they're loading them out. They literally had airplanes, 747s, out and built, but there were cement blocks on the wings where the engines go because the engines were not figured out yet. They went through 60 multi-million dollar engines trying to figure out what was wrong, because they couldn't simulate this with a computer at the time. And the president of the company was kind of in denial. He was like, eh, it's your fault. It's not like something, it's not like universal across all our engines, okay? It's probably something one of your guys did somewhere. So the test pilot of the 747 said, you and I are going for a ride. And he took him in their test 747, which they had been testing, actually flying with it. And they went up, and he said, okay, watch this. And he revved up engine one, full power, and it popped, and it blew. Then he revved up engine two, full power, pop, and it blew. He started revving up, there. okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so they went back down. I can see. Oh, and so they worked on it and they got the engine thing fixed. And what they found was when it would get to full power, it would start to deform a little bit, and it would mess up the mixture of air with the fuel to the point where it misfired. And so what they did to fix it was just increase the casing thickness so it was stronger so it could hold that pressure better and the power. So. They finally got this done, and the first flight from New York to London took place, and it was an incredible success. and Something that is, I mean, when you see a 747 fly, here's a, I love this picture because it shows, hey, little buddy. (laughs) Um, That one on the top is a 747. The one on the bottom is a small jet, but it's still a passenger jet. But you, you really have to see it against something to start appreciating how Incredibly large. This, so the wingspan of a 747 is longer than the Wright brothers' playing flu. in their their famous first flight. Okay, the wingspan. It's like woo. Okay, it's amazing that this thing can get off the ground. And you know, it's it's something that it's you see it. It looks kind of like the other ones, but it's so much bigger. Almost looks like it's moving slower, but it's just so much bigger. And so, you know, just remember that good ideas come when you're fishing. And um, if you do something good enough, it might be a tie.
0: Okay, <laughs> thank you. All right. All right, and now introducing Roger Billings.
2: me, or is it getting harder and harder to get you started?
0: <laughs> it seems to be harder and harder. It's <laughs> kind of like me, really though. You never know like which way it I'm going. Huh? No, you really never know.
2: <laughs> well, that was uh, pretty fun. So um, Microsoft invented a submarine. Yeah. Did you notice that someone cleaned the Windows logo off the front? <laughs> it was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of servers that are... Running Cellus programs—it's fun to think that you have servers keeping track of all your stuff. It's like servants, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, and that's kind of exciting to me. Some of you know that uh, I go back into time when there were no servers. There were mainframe computers with printers and terminals, and. <laughs> Microcomputers were just getting ready to be born. Someone at Intel had figured out how to build one, a guy named Federico. And so now uh, I saw a huge opportunity in the market. But I tried to figure out how would we keep track of all the data? How would you be able to find anything? And that's where the idea of making servers that just held the data for people with computers made a lot of sense and turned out to be that really launched my career financially was that that little simple idea. Like you said, you have to work for it. Make your own sweater, right? <laughs> okay. Well today I want to talk about something that's pretty neat. We have a special request from student tonight. He says, Tell us more about Tobler.
0: Yeah. Brianna. <laughs> Brianna,
2: okay. Tobler. Well I'm not gonna be able to do that, Brianna, because uh, Tobler is not a very popular bear, it seems. Uh, well, she likes him. He, he's pretty good. But you see, yes. he's got a real nasty friend. His name's Beak. And Beak is the chicken that's right. that does everything wrong, gets yeah. in trouble, uses bad language, and, and a lot of things like that. And, you know, uh, it turns out that somebody that's been using our new neighbors community have been Beak's.
0: That's a good way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, they've been beaks. <laughs> they've
2: been putting things on their posts in that, that have made some parents unhappy, yep. and that has slowed us down. It has because we want to make Selous neighbors a uplifting, safe place, mm-hmm. and so effective tonight. Like, what three hours ago, we put the writing tutor on on a neighbors, so that when you type things in, if you use some of those words that seem to offend people or hurt their feelings, it says, hey, wait a minute. Um, and you have a chance to fix those words. So any of you that have been saying things you shouldn't, clean up your act. Okay. Don't be beaks, right?
0: I'll work on that.
2: So it was you! Aha! <laughs> uh-huh. no,
0: now wasn't we know. Me. It's exciting. I'm one of those positive yeah. things, right? One of Those
2: positive <laughs> things. Well, I just want to remind everybody that it's science fair season. Mm-hmm. The time to get them in is really exciting. Uh, I always love April because it is science fair time, and uh, you know, one of the inventions that we need right now is a way to recharge things. Yeah. When you look at people, they have their phone and their computer and, and their smartwatch and all of these different things that we use in our world, and they all have to be recharged. And recharging them all is kind of a problem. If you happen to have a new Tesla, you have to recharge it too. And to recharge, you gotta plug in a wire and hook it up to electricity, etc. And it's, it's a problem. For a cellus. Charging is a problem, too. When you have a whole classroom full of students and they all have a computer and they all need to charge, that means you've got to put in a lot of plugs everywhere. And that's a real problem for a lot of the schools because they don't have plugs at every desk. So an interesting challenge for us to solve is a way to recharge things that is so much easier. And these kinds of technologies are coming. And I think it would be fun for some of you to think about how you could help make them come. What if you had a charger that you'd put on the ceiling of a classroom? So you bring your computer in and use it, and while you're using it, it's recharging. It's recharging from a distance.
0: That'd be neat.
2: And there are new technologies now being able to do that. But I want to be able to talk about it. And I decided that this is going to be the day that we get our hands dirty a little bit.
0: Good, because you have some anxious kids wondering what you have in front of you.
2: <laughs> Why well, you, of course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it wasn't me it was in front. We of you. had an amazing
2: visit from a student yesterday. It was really a lot of fun. But I Amen. want to talk about this charging thing, okay. and I want to be able to do it in a way that when you leave today, you own some really important, valuable science. I don't want to just say things and make you guess what I mean. I want to actually talk about it.
0: Okay. That is a lemon.
2: That is science, (laughs) right? So I'm going to throw you the very first question. What does a lemon have to do with recharging a computer?
0: (laughs) Mm. Time's (laughs) up. I don't know. There's acid in there. Yes, there is (laughs) acid in
2: there. And there's sour. And there's
0: sour. And there's
2: yellow. Don't forget the yellow. yellow. Tell me. Well, it's really interesting because if you're going to get into recharging things and especially recharging them at a distance so you don't have to hook up a wire, Uh you've got to understand about lemons or at least something about them. Now, I've got some things to go with the lemon, okay? okay? One of the things that I have is a nail. This, this is not fingernails. This is nail. actually a nail mm-hmm. like you would pound in a board to hold a house together. And I'm going to go ahead and put the nail in the lemon. Okay, now we've got a lemon and a nail. And you can see I've got a little wire hooked up to it, okay? I also have a piece of wire. This happens to be copper. Okay. So here is my hypothesis. It's not it's a question. Here's my hypothesis. If I were to stick this copper into the lemon, and I have the zinc-coated nail in the lemon, what would happen?
0: Nothing.
2: Nothing would happen. Wouldn't get lemonade or anything?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Well, what actually,
2: happen? it turns out that something would happen. Yeah. And so I brought some equipment today to kind of show this off a little bit. And I'm going to have to have you look right here. Can you see this little meter right here? Uh-huh. This is a current meter. It shows how much power is flowing. And I've got one side of this nail hooked up to the meter, and I've got the wire hooked up to the other side. So if I hook this up, it's going to measure whether or not there's any electricity. If this lemon were not a lemon, if instead it was a battery, and I hooked it up to this meter, as soon as I hook it up, the meter would go, because it would generate electricity And the electricity would show up on the current meter, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that this lemon is a lot like a battery. In fact, it can be a battery, especially with some zinc and some copper. Did you know that a battery is just some chemicals corroding? (laughs) A battery is chemicals corroding. In a car battery, like a lead acid battery, the acid you use is sulfuric acid, And the lead that you use is lead. Just lead. Just lead lead. Yeah, you know, lead lead. What happens is as you pull electricity out of the battery, the lead corrodes. And the electrodes start going into a dissolved salt in the acid. And when you recharge it, the lead's put back on the plates. So really, a battery is something corroding chemically. Now, if I stick this copper into this lemon, it might mess up the lemon, but I want you to watch what happens on this meter when I do it. Are you ready? So there's the meter, here's the lemon. Can you see that? Let's get it out here so you can see it, and I'm gonna stick it in. Watch the meter. Did you see that? So the meter is now showing that it's passing current through. I am generating electricity, and that's pretty neat. The electricity that I'm generating is caused by the electropotential difference between zinc and copper. And it's actually neat, okay? <laughs> it is neat. And, and I, I wanted to show that because, I'm gonna turn it off, it's important to understand that the electricity that we're gonna to use to charge our devices has to come from somewhere. We make electricity by burning fuel, mm-hmm. by collecting solar energy, by collecting wind, by running power through a generator from a big hydroelectric plant. But somehow, we have to make the energy. And the energy is made a little bit like by a battery. Now, I want to show you a different kind of battery. This is a flashlight battery. Can you see it? Mm -hmm. And uh, this one is very special because on the bottom of it, I happen to have some magnets stuck. Okay, I just put them there, and you'll see why in a minute. But inside the battery, again, we have a chemical that's corroding. When the chemical's all corroded, we say the battery's discharged, and if it's not a rechargeable battery, which this one doesn't happen to be, we toss it, right? Okay, so this battery is going to have positive potential at the bottom, negative at the bottom, and I've got these little batteries down here now. I think we'll be able to see that in just a minute. I want to show you this little piece of wire. Can you see that wire there on the camera? This is a piece of wire that I've built, or I've bent into kind of a funny shape. And it's a little bit hard to see because it's kind of small. But I'm gonna go ahead and put this over my battery and I've bent the bottom pieces underneath the, the wire so they will come in and touch the magnet. Does that make sense? So what would happen if I put this on the battery, well let's find out. So I stretch this little piece of wire over the battery and set it down. And I don't know if you can oops, Aww. I don't know if you can see that. But it actually Could hear spins it. like a little motor. But well, oh, when I keep it on the top. There we go. And and look at it go. So it is cruising like a little motor spinning right on top around this battery. And all it is is a piece of wire stuck on the battery. And as the battery corrodes, it's giving off this power. And that power is what we have to get from some source, a battery or a generator, to our computers and things if we want to be able to recharge them. That's neat. Okay, Well, it gets neater.
0: Okay. (laughs) It's neater. Can
2: Can you see these instruments that I brought? This little box is a signal generator. I'll go ahead and turn the light on here. That means it generates a signal.
0: Different kinds of signals.
2: Yeah, and the kind of signal it generates is electricity. It turns electricity on and then turns it off. And you say, well, I can do that with a light switch. Well, you can, but this was kind of special because it's got a light switch inside. And what it does, it turns electricity on and turns it off. At a certain rate or speed. So right now, I, on this little dial, you can read the number. It says 1.0000, so kilohertz. So that means it's going to turn on and off 1,000 times a second. And it's generating electricity. that. So I have a wire coming out of here, and electricity comes on for a thousandth of a second, and then it turns off. Then it turns on, and then it turns off. The second box is called an oscilloscope. It is a box that monitors electricity to see whether it's on or off and displays it in this little window. Now, you guys really want to understand this. Oscilloscopes are as neat as popsicles (laughs) and lollipops. They're really neat. And it's a little tricky to get this concept, but once you do, this is something everybody can understand and everybody will love it. You'll probably all order one of these off the internet when we get done tonight because they are so neat. <laughs> okay. These two instruments allow you to do so many neat things. I'm going to show you some of them right now. Okay. okay? So down here on the bottom is a, a line that is because when the signal comes out of this wire, it starts out. Oops, it jumped. Look at that. I, I jumped it already. <laughs> it's at zero volts, and then it jumps up to five volts, and continues at five volts for a while. Now, if I slide this over a little bit, there you go, you can see the voltage goes up, and then it goes down, up and down. If I turn my knob on the signal generator, it's at one kilohertz, 1,000 cycles a second. If I go up to two, like, whoop, I went clear up to three, now you can see these pulses got very narrow because it's going off faster. Let's go up to four up to 5,000 times a second. Can you see how those are getting more and more and more narrow? So what this is doing is it's making a signal that goes on and then off so many times a second, whatever I indicated at. And over here, the oscilloscope is showing me what it's doing. So you say, well, how come there's so many? Because an oscilloscope is kind of like a record. It says first it went on, it was on for that long, then it went off, then it went, on, then it went on, so it's like a movie. It's like a movie showing here. So I can turn this back down and make this get really narrow. Now, something else really kind of cool, I think. What if I had a really powerful signal generator and, and right now it's making what we call a square wave? That means it turns the power on and then it turns it off, right? But what if... I had a generator that could turn the voltage on gradually. And then it would turn it off gradually. That would be called a sine wave. And I happen to have one of those. So I'm going to switch <laughs> to the sine function. Okay. And I want you to watch what happens when I hit a sine wave. That's fun. So now the voltage is going up and then it goes down. And it does this over and over and over again. And this thing actually is just repeating and repeating and repeating. So that's a square wave. That's a sine wave. And it's kind of interesting. so what about that? Well, did I show you a sawtooth wave? What no. would a sawtooth wave be? That would be, that'd be where the voltage comes up like mm-hmm. this, and then it drops all of a sudden. Turns off mm-hmm. all at once, and it comes up. So let's, let's look at it. A sawtooth wave. And look. Can you see that? Looks like the points on a saw blade. Mm-hmm. So... Sawtooth, square wave, sine wave. And I can change the frequency of any of these. And the oscilloscope shows me how fast they are. Now, there's actually little lines here. So I can actually measure what frequency I'm making. And by the way, this is right now at 14,000 hertz.
0: So what would you use this
2: for? Could you please... Make a 14,000 yeah, hertz. <laughs> if I hook this up to a speaker, uh-huh. each of these frequencies would make a tone because I'm in the audio range. So 14,000 hertz is so high that I would be squealing like like you could. Okay? Can squeal? So I'm going to come back down. Oh, come down, come down. When I get down here, oh, when you get around... I think I could do about a 1,000 hertz tone. You want to hear that? Uh-huh. See how close I get. This is like being an opera singer, kind <laughs> of. That sound like a 1,000 hertz? <laughs> Those are estimates. But if I hook these up to a speaker, <laughs> it would make noise just like that because okay. that's what a signal generator does. And if I go down to... 500 kilohertz. Oh, we, we do have a, a problem. If I went down to 500 hertz, a half a kilohertz, then I get down in my ring. Bop. Oh, I started out low. Almost got a <laughs> 60 hertz. And the, the power in our buildings in America changes direction 60 times a second. So we call that 60 hertz or 60 Sixty cycles per second. And that is a noise way down. (laughs) Some of you hear that just from your wiring buzzing or a motor or something you plug in.
0: I like that low voice. Can we hear it again? Yes. (laughs)
2: That that one was so low you couldn't hear it. (laughs) Right? And and (laughs) it is true that the human ear kind of peters out around about thirty three Hertz for most people and um, the human ear can hear up to, different people can hear different levels, but when you get up around 18,000 to 22,000 hertz, then it's such a high pitch, and and then it starts fading out. A really good stereo system would, would go down to maybe 30 hertz on the low frequency, and some of them might go up to like, Oh, twenty-eight thousand, thirty thousand 28,000, 30,000 hertz, 33,000 is the highest I've ever seen. Because that's so so high that only the dogs and the animals mm-hmm. can hear it. And they can hear quite a bit higher okay. than we. That's why we have those whistles. Yep. Have you seen a dog whistle that you blow? And all you do is get dizzy for loss of air, but the dog comes because they can hear it and we can't. That's neat. Yeah, that is neat. So that about concludes. No, we were talking no, we're about not. how we were going to charge things. Yes. So, why do we want to turn electricity off and on, off and on, off and on? We're trying to charge a computer. We just we plug it in the wall and it just turns on and it charges. Well, this is my next little thing. I have two pieces of steel, and both of these pieces of steel. let's let's put this back camera on. maybe we can see them better. There you go. Both the pieces of steel have copper that I've wound around them to make coils with a ferrite core. And this is really, really an important technology. And I made two here so you can kind of understand how it works. If I take electricity, like comes out of the wall, at 110 volts, volts in electricity is how hard the electricity is pushing. It's like in water. If you have a garden hose and you turn on the water and it's got 10 pounds pressure, it's not going to spray very far. So pressure in water is how hard it's spraying, how much force it's spraying with. In electricity, pressure we call volts. Okay, Volts is how hard it's pushing. In water, you see how long it takes to fill up a gallon bucket. That's the flow rate. One gallon per minute, one gallon per hour, one gallon per second. That would be a big Fast hose, that would be a fire hose, right? Mm -hmm. In electricity, how fast it flows, we call amperes or amps. So volts is how hard it's pushing, amperes is how fast the electrons are flowing. And the power is the volts times the amps. In water, the power is the gallons per minute times how hard you're pushing. If you're pushing it way up high, so it takes a lot of pressure, you have a lot of power. And those are things that you get into in physics, and we study those. But today, we just need to understand this. If I have a coil that is hooked up to the wall outlet, and the electricity coming out of the wall is changing direction 60 times a second, when it goes through this coil, it makes a magnet. And then it reverses and makes a magnet the other direction. And it changes back and forth 60 times a second. Why do we do that? Why can't we just turn on the electricity and leave it on? Do you know? Yes, you do. (laughs) She's an electrical engineer. She's plain sweet. I am plain sweet.
0: But anyway, it
2: is really interesting to understand why. In the early days of electric lighting and energizing cities, our mentor's mentor, Thomas Edison had invented a light bulb that was commercial and could be sold, but he needed electricity. And generating electricity meant they had to burn fuel or do something, uh, corrode lemons, (laughs) whatever. But they wanted to bring the electricity from Niagara Falls to New York City. The power of the water going over Niagara Falls was enough to light up the whole city. But it was a long ways away. And so if they took the electricity and brought it through wires all that distance, it would heat up the wires, and that heat would go out to heat the air, and by the time they got to New York, most of the power would be lost. So it really wouldn't work. There was another guy named Tesla, Mm -hmm. like the car. He was named after the car. No. (laughs) See, the car was named after him, okay? Nikolai Tesla. And Tesla had an idea. He said, if you change the current, Mm -hmm. so it's alternating one direction, another direction, 60 times a second, and put it in a coil, then something magical happens. If you put another coil close to the first coil, the electricity jumps from the first one to the second one, even though there's no wires. Mm -hmm. And... Matthew is over saying, how can this be? <laughs> and it can be because when the electricity goes through this coil, it makes an electromagnet. And the electromagnet makes a magnetic field around here, and that magnetic field hits this coil and generates electricity. Only it just does it for a, an instant, and then the current stops flowing. That's why we turn it off and run it backwards... Because it makes electricity again and again and again and again and again. Otherwise, it would only make one little burst of electricity when you turn it on and another burst when you turn it off. But this way, it's going back and forth 60 times a second, so it's constantly sending electricity to the second coil. And we have something called a transformer. And you say, well, why would you want to send electricity from here to there? Well, would be neat. But there actually turns out to be a magical reason that Tesla said to do this. Let's say this first coil has 100 windings of wire around the coil. And let's say this one had 1,000 windings around the coil. And then you put them close together. If you put 100 volts in this one, you get 1,000 volts out this one because it multiplies by the ratio of windings. If you have 10 times as many windings on this one as you do the first one, the voltage will be 10 times higher. And so this is a way you can change the voltage real easy. No transistors, no tubes, just windings with metal core going through them. And that's really significant because they could go out to Niagara Falls And they could use a transformer to take the voltage and jump it up to a very high voltage, like maybe 10,000 volts. And then when it went through the wires all the way to New York, you wouldn't lose very much. Because there's so much force pushing it. And then you reverse the coils. So you have one with a lot of turns on this side, one with just a few over here. And it jumps down to the 100 volts you want to run in your house. Does that make sense? Now have you ever seen those big giant power lines when you're driving down the freeway the great that look like ladies holding like the ladies. wires, you yep. know? Uh, or or I thought they were like, like maybe men, maybe aliens. No. But anyway, <laughs> they have them out there with these big, big wires. They're really big. I think a lot of the students don't realize that on those they step the voltage all the way up to are you ready for it? A million volts. Wow. These big transmission lines are a million volts. And in the U.S., about 6% of all the electricity we generate is lost from the power lines, just heating up the air. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't for the high voltages, it would be like 99%, and we wouldn't be able to power anything. And that's possible because a coil makes a magnetic field and another coil in the same field converts the magnetic field back into electricity. So this is a way you can change the voltage. But we're not talking about changing the voltage today, are we? No. We're talking about charging computers. So what if you have one coil that you run an alternating current through... And then you have another coil that's hooked up to your computer. Has it, have you seen wireless chargers? Mm-hmm. It's like just a little plate there you put on your table, yeah. your desk, and you put your phone just on it and it charges, no wires. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening. There is a coil inside the phone, and there's a coil in that little charging plate, and the charging plate is making a magnetic field that's coming and going, coming and going many times a second, and the magnetic energy is transferring electricity from the charger to the phone. And that's, that's pretty neat technology, isn't it? It is. You can buy a charger for a car, for an electric powered car that you can put in your garage or somewhere else. <laughs> and you can drive the car over this thing in the floor and it has a big coil, makes a big magnetic field. You have another coil in your car So you can recharge your car without plugging it in. And a lot of people are perfecting that technology to be able to charge their things uh, without hooking them up. I think electric cars are gonna be a lot neater and there's some recent technological breakthroughs in that. One of the technologies that's really caught my eye though is the technology I talked about at the beginning about putting something up in the ceiling. If we put a coil up in the ceiling and then we put another coil on everybody's computer, unfortunately, you wouldn't get much charge because the coils would be too far apart. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, you're really tall and you hold your computer right up by the charger, <laughs> right? So a group, group of researchers have developed another method where they, they basically are putting a light bulb up in the ceiling. Now, the light in, in this room is white. Which means it's, it's got blues, reds, greens, it's got all the colors, all of them together look white. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. Right? <laughs> but there is also invisible light, and there are two kinds. There's light that is faster wavelength than the human eye can see, we call that ultraviolet, mm-hmm. and then there's light that is slower wavelength than our eye can see. We can only see in the middle of the range. The infrared light, which is the low frequency light, we feel like heat as it hits our skin and is absorbed. What they're using in this this new technology is infrared light. If you've been to a fast food place and they have two red lights Mm -hmm. there keeping the food warm, those are infrared lights. Some of you may have infrared cookers where you turn on the cooker and it glows orange and you put your food on and it cooks. That's infrared light. Well, infrared light bulbs in the ceiling can be used to charge all your computers and devices in a room and that is now being developed into a commercial technology and a standard and I think it's something that, that I'm, I'm pretty excited about. If you want to look about it, it's called WeCharge, is at least one of the companies that's really promoting the standard and, and something I'm looking into for our cellist computers. Think about it. There's a problem. When we need to charge things, um, it it is problematic. uh, Running all the wires. Sometimes you want to put things where there aren't any wires. One of the things that used to really bother me was the smoke detectors in a home. You put a smoke detector up on the ceiling, so if there's a fire, it sounds the alarm. Everybody can wake up, put out the fire, and get out of the house, right? But the problem is to be able to monitor for fire and then to sound the alarm, the smoke detector needs a battery. So you put a battery in the smoke detector and over months and usually a few years, the battery runs out of corrosion. And when it does and the battery's almost ready to die, the smoke detector starts chirping. You ever had that happen? Mm -hmm. Chirp, chirp, chirp. It's very, very annoying when you're trying to sleep. Chirp, chirp, (laughs) chirp, my battery's dying. And so I thought, wouldn't it be nice if they would never run out? So here's an idea. And this is an idea that's actually in production now. What if you took a little teeny solar collector and put it on the smoke detector? Now you say, well, what good would that do? Because it's inside where there's no sun. Well, there is light inside. Mm -hmm. And so as the lights are shining in the room, or any sun comes in the window, it's putting just a small charge back in the battery. And since smoke detectors take very little power, it just keeps them going. Good idea. Someone got that idea before I did. (laughs) Yeah, sad? I had that idea, and then I went and checked, and yep, you can buy those. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's interesting. Everybody's trying to get good ideas, and, and a lot of your ideas, you know, people beat you to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm making mine better than theirs. <laughs> you show sure them, huh? Yeah, well, I haven't figured out how yet, <laughs> Okay. but I'm going to. So that's a lot of what the science fair is about, is how to take an idea to study something, And then as you get a little bit more advanced and you've taken a few more cells classes and you're more power because knowledge is power, then you can come up with ideas that will allow you to actually solve a problem. And the problem might be charging computers or charging electric car without charging. Of course, uh, I think the best way to charge an electric car is to pull out the batteries and put in a hydrogen fuel cell. Yes,
0: that yes. is. Yeah. It is.
2: But that's another story for another time.
0: We do have a question. OK, we do have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the students are wondering what Hertz stands for. Not
2: Hertz. Hertz, doesn't it? It does. It mm-hmm. hurts it's a car comp <laughs> a rental company, Hertz. Oh, yeah. It's spelled uh, different. <clears throat> Actually,
0: it's not. It's when I was a student
2: <laughs> in school, we were supposed to make a TV commercial for a class I was taking on advertising. And so we, we couldn't edit like we do today with our computers. We had to do it with film. So the way you ed- edit film is you get a razor blade and cut it and tape it together and hope it would play. So I was making a commercial, and there was this real neat uh, I- idea that I had. They had been advertising Hertz rental cars. Hertz is a very large, I think they're still the largest rental car company in America. And so I made this commercial where I had a guy come flying through the air and he landed in the seat of a convertible car. So I was going down the road driving, he came in like that and he landed in the car and I took two pieces of film and put them together to do that. And then, in my announcer voice, mm-hmm. I came in and says, Hurts, doesn't it? And then I had the car go. Ksh-sh-sh. Oh, <laughs> That's
0: terrible. I didn't get a very good grade on that one. <laughs> Not even for your editing no, job? No, I didn't get right? a very good grade. Like, I put uh, a lot of effort into <laughs> it, I will say. But, you know,
2: hurts. Hurts, yes. Hurts. So hurts is the term that we use for how many times an electric signal changes direction per second. So if a signal changes direction one time a second, then we say it's operating at one hertz, or one cycle per second. If it's changing a million times a second, we call it one megahertz. And maybe some of you have heard that. If Mm -hmm. it's like our wideband networking stuff, and it changes a billion times a second, then we say it's one gigahertz all right so hertz is how fast the signal changes changes frequency okay okay anything else
0: we like your demonstration the gizmos aren't they yes. fun we love yeah we love i them.
2: i think there are so many things that you can do with these the first time that i saw an oscilloscope and i saw all these little signals up there i couldn't i couldn't get it they say yeah that's just the voltage and i said what do you mean it's the voltage it looks like these squigglies But what you have to do is understand that here's the beginning of a cycle and it's like a movie playing. So you're watching what the voltage did over a period of time. And once you get that concept, then you can do all kinds of neat things with oscilloscopes. And oscilloscopes now are pretty affordable. Used to be quite expensive. And signal generators are pretty affordable. And you can do all sorts of neat things. I borrowed these... Out of Area 51, (laughs) where I try many, many crazy things and have a lot of wonderful time and experiments. How neat. Yeah, and of course, the ones that work, I show you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'd like to see more of your experiments.
2: Okay, well, we will. So till next time, study hard, study hard. If you haven't got your science fair or your dance, Entered yet, it's time to do it. And if you know some nasty words that might hurt somebody's feelings, no more in neighbors, no more beaks. We're just going to be toblers, okay? Thank you. We'll see you next time.